Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Neville and Helen Anderson were eating breakfast with a group of friends when their son, Stephen, walked into the room and confessed to committing bestiality. Less than five minutes later, half of the people around the breakfast table were running for their lives, and the rest of them were dead. This is Monsters. It was February 8, 1997. Neville and Helen Anderson had invited a group of their friends to spend time at their lodge in the North Island of New Zealand. It was a beautiful remote location in a small town called Roromu that was surrounded by dense native forest. In fact, the isolation of the lodge was why Neville and Helen had chosen to build it. It served as a kind of escape from them and their friends, a way to get away from the rest of the world. On this particular trip to the lodge, Neville and Helen had invited nine of their friends. There were three other married couples, Raymond and Eve Spencer, Isabel and Anthony McCarty, and Gordon and Andrea Brander, as well as their other friends, John Matthews, Michelle Churton, and Stephen Hansen. However, there was also an unexpected guest, Neville and Helen's 24-year-old son, Stephen. Throughout his early adulthood, Stephen had shown symptoms of severe mental illness, and at 22 years old, he received a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. His parents were aware of his mental illness, and they knew that it was serious. Even after he'd started receiving treatment, Stephen still wasn't mentally stable. When Neville and Helen made plans to go away that weekend, they discussed Stephen and agreed that they didn't feel right about leaving him home alone. Instead, they invited their son to come with them so that they could keep a closer eye on him. Three days before their trip away, Helen had walked into Stephen's bedroom to find Stephen cleaning an old sawed-off shotgun that was usually kept in an empty violin case. She asked him what he was doing with the gun. He replied, quote, They're coming after me. Helen told him not to be silly and reassured him that nobody was coming after him. She didn't try to take the gun away from Stephen or lock it up after he was finished cleaning it. Some of Helen and Neville's friends were unhappy that Stephen had been invited on the trip. His presence changed the dynamic of the group, especially because, on the morning of February 8th, it was clear that Stephen's schizophrenia symptoms were getting worse. He strode into the room where the group was getting ready to eat breakfast and announced to his parents' horrified friends that he had had sex with both a cat and a dog. Helen was mortified and told Stephen to go back to the bedroom and wash up before joining them for breakfast. Stephen left the room, but not to wash up. Instead, he walked back in, now holding a sawn-off shotgun in his hands. His father, Neville, couldn't believe what he was seeing. He jumped to his feet and grabbed for the gun, asking Stephen what he was doing. Without hesitation, Stephen fired, 
the bullet killed his father instantly. As Neville collapsed to the floor, the group of friends panicked. They all got to their feet and scattered, trying to make their way outside and away from Stephen, who just kept shooting. He managed to shoot Andrea and John before they were able to escape the dining room. Stephen Hansen made it as far as the phone, where he managed to call the police and ask for help. It was already too late. On the other end of the line, the operator listened as the caller began to beg the gunman, pleading for his life. There was the sound of gunshots and then silence. Stephen Hansen was dead. Two couples managed to flee outside, Raymond and Eve Spencer and Isabel and Anthony McCarty. Raymond tried to take cover by throwing himself and his wife into the bushes. He was shot in the face by Stephen, but the wound wasn't deadly. He and Eve lay motionless, playing dead and hoping that Stephen wouldn't come back to check if they were still alive. Michelle Churton successfully hid in the forest nearby, remaining undetected by Stephen. The whole time, she could hear the shooting continuing and the noises of her friends screaming. Worried that she would accidentally make too much noise, she bit down on her t-shirt, hoping that the fabric would muffle the sound. Isabel and Anthony weren't so lucky. A bullet hit Isabel in the back, causing her to briefly lose consciousness. When she came to, she was lying on the ground with Anthony next to her. He too had been shot and killed. By now, Stephen had either murdered or lost sight of all the guests in his parents' lodge, but he wasn't done. With his shotgun still loaded, he moved off the property, heading to the nearest house. The Andersons' neighbors were Hank and Helen of Van de Wettering. They'd lived there for almost 15 years after deciding to get away from the big cities and reconnect with nature. That weekend, they also had visitors, their son Rodney, his wife Kim, and their two babies, Troy and Becky. The weather forecast looked good and the family were planning on taking advantage of it by driving to nearby Lake Taupo. Kim was getting the kids ready while Helena made breakfast, but Rod was outside, packing the car with supplies. They'd already heard gunshots in the distance, but they didn't think anything of it. With the native forest that surrounded the area, it wasn't unusual for somebody to be out hunting, even first thing in the morning. Minutes before Stephen made his way to the Vanderwettering house, Helen Anderson managed to climb over the fence and into their yard. Standing by the car, Rod watched in disbelief, wondering what she was doing. As she approached, Helen was in a state of panic, but through her distress, she managed to tell Rod that there had been a shooting and some people had been killed. Rod ran inside to alert his father, Hank. Together, they ran towards the lodge next door where they saw several dead bodies as well as a severely wounded couple trying to escape. This was more than enough for them to believe that Helen was telling the truth. Hank decided to continue approaching the property but ordered Rod to run back home and call the police. Rod told his mother and Helen to grab the kids, get into the car, and drive to safety. But his wife Kim ran to the Anderson Lodge to try to help her father-in-law. While Helena and Helen were scrambling to get the kids into the back seat of the vehicle, Rod grabbed his rifle, hoping to take down the shooter himself. He could hear more shots ringing out nearby as he got into the driver's seat and began to turn the car around. Suddenly, the shooting stopped and Rod saw Steven Anderson climb over the fence between their properties, still holding his weapon. With Steven now standing with his sawn-off shotgun aimed at the car, Rod wasn't able to reverse the car far enough to turn it around. 
The Van de Wettering's driveway was narrow and steep. Rod knew that simply reversing out of the driveway and onto the road wasn't an option. He briefly considered driving through the gate to the back of the property, but his parents always kept the gate locked. If he wanted to get through it, he'd have to expose himself by stopping the car and getting out of the vehicle. There was only one option. Rod stopped the car and stepped out, aiming his rifle at Steven. He kept the body of the vehicle between them, hoping that it would protect him if Steven started firing. Even with a gun pointed at him and Rod repeatedly ordering him to back off, Steven didn't calm down or surrender. He walked closer to Rod. Back off, Rod ordered one last time. For a moment, it seemed as if Steven was willing to surrender. He threw himself to the ground unexpectedly, startling Rod, before lifting his shotgun and aiming. The bullet hit Rod in the face. Incredibly, the wound wasn't fatal, and with the adrenaline rushing through his body, Rod remained conscious. The vision in his right eye was gone, but he could still see through his left, even though it was blurry. Within seconds, he came up with a plan to save his family from Steven. If he tried to run away and got Steven to chase him, he hoped that it would give Helen and Helena enough time to turn the car around and drive to safety. With blood pouring from the wound in his face, Rod started to run. When he turned and saw that Steven was in pursuit, it seemed like the plan was working. He managed to push his way through the foliage and heave himself over a fence, but his injury was beginning to take its toll. Rod would later say, quote, I actually thought I was dying. I was getting really tired. I couldn't see anything, and there was blood all over me. I thought that was it. I thought I was dead, and I just wanted to get him away from that car. While Rod had been distracting Stephen from the rest of the group, his father, Hank, and wife Kim had managed to get to the road, where they tried to attract the attention of passing cars. Finally, a logging truck saw them and pulled over to help. But Stephen had given up on chasing Rod, and unknown to Hank and Kim, he'd made his way back towards the road. As the logging truck parked on the side of the main road, Stephen appeared out of nowhere and fired at Hank. Like Rod, Hank was shot in the head, but his wound was much more serious. After Hank dropped to the ground, Stephen stood there, his shotgun now aimed at Kim. After a moment, Stephen seemed to have a change of heart and lowered the gun. Instead of shooting Kim, Stephen took off running. Rod was seriously injured and unable to think or see clearly. He had no idea if Stephen was still chasing him and no idea that his father had just been fatally shot. He pushed his way through the native forest, making his way to the top of Rormu Spiral, a railway track that wound around a nearby hill. Finally, his exhaustion was too much and Rod collapsed to the ground. Another of the Andersons' neighbors, Colin Parker, drove up to the property shortly after Hank was shot. He and Hank had been friends for years, and when the sight of Hank bleeding on the ground came into his line of sight, Colin had no idea what he was looking at. He would later say, quote, As I came up the road, I noticed Hank was lying on the road, and nobody seemed to be helping him. Initially, I thought he'd been hit by a car. I walked right up to Hank. There was a truck going up the hill slowly, and as it passed, I saw Steven Anderson right there on the road. I didn't think much of that, but then he just hopped off into the bush and disappeared. I got to Hank and tried to see if I could help him, but it was too late. I realized something was horribly wrong. Despite his injury, Hank was still alive, but to Colin, it was clear that this wasn't a wound that Hank would be able to recover from. 
Colin bundled Hank into his arms and cradled him while his friend and neighbor took his last breaths. In an incredible coincidence, a local doctor, Paul Dawson, happened to be driving by. He saw Hank and Colin and pulled the car over. Seeing the extent of Hank's injuries, Paul explained that there was nothing else Colin could have done, telling him, quote, even if it had happened right outside a hospital, he couldn't have been saved. Another local man, Alan Henderson, arrived at the scene. He'd heard that something had gone wrong, although he didn't know the details and wanted to help. But Alan had his young son with him, and Colin quickly warned him that Hank was not going to live, and told him to leave. Wanting to shield his son from the horror of Hank's injuries and the danger of the shooter, Alan quickly left. Police helicopters began circling overhead, trying to locate Stephen, while armed officers struggled through the dense forest on foot. The road was closed, so Colin and the rest of the locals who had gathered there had no choice but to stay put, hoping that Stephen wouldn't return to shoot them. An hour and a half slowly passed before the road was reopened. One of the helicopters contained local police officer Derek Webb. As they circled above the Anderson's Lodge, Derek saw a flash of movement and asked the pilot to fly lower so he could see more clearly. Sure enough, there was a person running out of the forest, completely naked. There was no sign of any weapon. Officer Webb was sure that the naked man was Stephen and signaled to him trying to get him to lie down on the ground. Stephen either didn't understand or didn't want to obey. Instead, he continued running. The helicopter flew even lower, and Derek repeated the command. This time, he aimed his rifle at Stephen. At the sight of the gun, Stephen immediately lay down on the ground. Officer Webb exited the helicopter, and at the same time, members of the armed defender squad arrived to apprehend Stephen. After making sure he was indeed unarmed, the armed defender squad handcuffed Stephen and loaded him into the helicopter with Officer Webb. This kind of mass shooting was almost unheard of in New Zealand. The officer was already in a state of disbelief, which only increased when he realized he was going to have to spend the entire helicopter flight comforting the distraught shooter. While Stephen sobbed, Officer Webb tried to reassure him by telling him that nobody was going to hurt him and that he was safe. Once the helicopter landed at Tomatanui Police Station, Officer Webb was also the one to carry out the initial police interview with Stephen. He asked, quote, Did you shoot someone? Stephen was quick to reply that yes, he had shot someone, but when asked who he'd shot, he said he couldn't remember. The officer tried another tactic, asking Stephen, quote, Who was the first person you shot? This time, he got an answer. Stephen simply said, quote, Dog. Then he continued, quote, Hang on, I think the first one I shot was my father. He was disguised as dog. When Officer Webb asked him to explain this statement, Stephen told him that dog was God spelled back to front, and that, quote, he had shot his father because he was dog. It was an unusual confession, but it was a confession all the same. Officer Webb officially placed Stephen Anderson under arrest for his father's murder. At this stage, law enforcement knew that Stephen had shot multiple people, but they didn't know how many or the locations of all the bodies. They decided to transport Stephen back to the Anderson's Lodge that same day, hoping that he would be able to show them where key pieces of evidence were. Stephen obediently did so, showing the officers several of the bodies of his victims and telling them the location of his discarded clothing and sawn-off shotgun. Rod Van de Wettering was still alive, but he was weak. 
He remained in the same place he had collapsed until he was discovered by police and transported to the nearest hospital. When he reunited with his wife at the hospital, there was only a brief moment of relief that she was still alive before he was told that his father, Hank, had been fatally shot. Even now, Rod Van de Wettering still has to live with constant wondering if he could have done something different, something that would have saved his father's life. He said, quote, There are a lot of moments that I would like to go back and do again that day, and do it right. I wouldn't have given Stephen the opportunity. That was my crime. If I'd shot him, then my father would still be alive. I know I did everything I could that day. I know I didn't do too bad a job because I got my two kids out and my mom. But in the back of my mind, my dad still died because I didn't kill Steven Anderson. I still feel guilty about that. Even though I know I shouldn't, I still do. You just can't bury that. The shooting is something that Rod and Kim have never been able to escape. In an interview, Rod said that he still thinks about it every day, and added, quote, Unfortunately, my life doesn't sparkle anymore. I don't get excited about anything. It's just one day after another. Like Rod, Kim still suffers from survival's guilt, and for two years after the shooting, she needed medication just to cope with day-to-day -day life. In her own words, this is how Kim Van de Wettering remembers the massacre. Quote, I remember every single second, every minute, every detail, every sound, every smell, every fear, every moment. Feeling facing evil, feeling not being able to run, feeling watching while your children and husband are being shot at. The feeling as the killer approached and you knew it was over, but somehow it wasn't. It's like it was only yesterday, it's just less fearful now. For the parents of two young children, Kim and Rod were left with the burden of trying to grieve Hank's death and deal with the trauma of the massacre while also continuing to raise Troy and Becky as well as they could. They were both all too aware of how life could change in an instant, and how easily it was to lose their children or family members to an act of violence. Kim said, quote, To this day, in public, I never have my back to the opening of a restaurant or door. I always have an escape route. I do this without thinking. To try and leave the memory of the massacre behind them, Rod and Kim decided to move overseas, as did Rod's mother, Helena. Since Hank's death, Helena hasn't publicly spoken out about what happened that day. A part of the grief and trauma that all of the Roromu massacre survivors face is the knowledge that their attacker, Steven Anderson, is still alive. Some of them blame Stephen's mother for failing to confiscate the gun before the tragedy unfolded. Others blame Stephen for his poorly managed, unstable mental health entirely. Both Kim and Ron Van de Wettering have publicly stated that they forgive Stephen, but want nothing to do with him. Kim gave a statement directly to Stephen where she said, quote, I forgive you, but you are not part of our lives and will never be again. You cannot hurt us and you don't have control over us anymore but don't come near my family, because the outcome will be a whole lot different. Because of his diagnosed mental health issues, the jury at Stevens' trial found him not guilty of all the charges he faced. Eight counts of attempted murder, six counts of murder, and one count of unlawful possession of a firearm. Steven was placed in a forensic mental health facility instead of prison. He remained there from December 1997 until 2009, but at some stage, he was permitted to leave the facility to visit his family as part of his rehabilitation program. In 2009, Stephen was formally released from inpatient care. 
He was allowed to live freely in the community as long as he was continually monitored and received ongoing psychiatric care from the facility. He published a book of poetry, was briefly reinstitutionalized after he was caught using synthetic marijuana, and after he was released from care a second time, he started working as an art tutor. He also started selling handmade jewelry online. Disturbingly, some of his jewelry pieces were made out of bullet casings. Somehow, he'd gotten the tutoring job without disclosing his criminal past. After the art school found out that their new tutor was a mass shooter, Stephen lost his job. In 2014, Stephen broke his silence and took part in a public interview. For the first time, it gave the public more of an idea of what was going on in his head during the shooting. This is some of what he said. Quote, I just felt totally alone and that it was all up to me, basically to save the world. It sounds crazy and it is. I didn't feel that I had a choice in the matter. So you think, if you have a choice, I have to do this or the world will end. And even though I loved my father and my father loved me, I saw him as the leader of this group of people and he was first on my list of things to take care of that morning. I thought, I'll give them a chance. I'll make sure that I'm taking the right action here. But how I interpreted their response, my mind found a way to take that as confirmation of the people that I thought they were. So I went up to my room and I came back with a shotgun. My dad, he saw the direness of the situation and he jumped up from the table and tried to take it from me. And that's when he was shot. The place erupted into pandemonium and some people got away and some people didn't. No matter what was going on in Steven Anderson's mind that day, to the people he murdered, and likely to the people he didn't, he will always be a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.